Our work is deeply embedded in achieving racial justice. Our work is embedded in having social justice. And we recognize that the work cannot be done if we do not recognize that this means acknowledging racism in all of our systems. There's racism that is rooted in our healthcare systems, our education systems, our legal systems, political systems, all of our systems in America. And we really have to acknowledge that first before we can move on. I'm Jack Newton, CEO of Clio, and this is the Daily Matters podcast. On Daily Matters, we talk with legal professionals, industry leaders, and subject matter experts about the future of law. We explore where the legal industry is headed, how legal practice is changing, and what you can be doing to position yourself for success. Today's guest is Jenny Biev Jones-Wright, who is the Executive Director at Community Advocates for Just and Moral Governance, or MOGO, which demands transparency and governmental accountability to serve all people, especially those who are marginalized. She's also the founder of Motivation in Action, a professional motivational speaking forum. Jenny Biev, it's great to have you here today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me for this very important discussion. I'm thrilled to have you here. Uh, so I would love for you to start off uh, with just a, an overview of your career. You've done a lot of uh, important work and I'd love for you to share with our audience uh, some of your, your background and some of the work you're doing today. So I love to always let people know that I am a native San Diegan because I believe that that is very rare. There's not a lot of folks who are born and raised in San Diego that still live here. And so I call myself a unicorn. I was born and raised in Southeast San Diego, which is a wonderful area in San Diego, but gets a lot of negative coverage in the media. And so I'm always proud to say that I have always lived in Southeast San Diego. And even as an attorney, I still reside in Southeast San Diego. I went to college in San Francisco at the University of San Francisco and fulfilled a lifelong dream of being Howard Law trained. And so I got my JD from Howard University School of Law in Washington, DC, returned home and attended California Western School of Law where I earned my master in laws. And from there, I went on to criminal defense as a solo practitioner and then became a public defender in Riverside County and then returned home to San Diego. And I served the County of San Diego as a public defender for 13 years. I left the office last year. Uh, and you've spent some time doing some volunteer work with the California Innocence Project, which is a, a, a project close to Cleo's heart as well. Absolutely. I've been a volunteer attorney with the California Innocence Project for many years. And that experience as a volunteer attorney and reviewing the applications of persons who are incarcerated and who feel that they're wrongfully convicted has been a very rewarding experience. And really, it has been a critical piece to the work that I do. So not only am I a volunteer attorney with the California Innocence Project, but I am now the executive director of Community Advocates for Just and Moral Governance. We call ourselves MOGO. That's a term of endearment that the community uh, calls us. And, and also because it's a very long name, right? Let's keep it real. It's a very long name. And so we call ourselves MOGO. MOGO has a ring to it as well. 
Mogul has a wonderful ring to it. Thank you so very much for acknowledging that. I got a little bit of criticism for that. <laughs> um, I'm a co-founder along with Andrea St. Julian, who is the president of the Earl B. Gilliam Bar Association. I am the vice president. And that is our local black bar association, if you will. And we have been doing a lot of the work for decades regarding racial justice and social justice. And, and I'm so proud to continue the work. And this is obviously a, a line of work that has drawn you over the, the course of your career. Can you tell us what attracted you in the first place and, and what keeps you coming back to contributing to these efforts day after day? Absolutely. I always say that as a public defender, we are on the front lines of justice. And so when we talk about things like racial profiling and excessive force that's being used by police officers, public defenders are really the first line of defense for people who are criminally accused. There's been so many times where we've gotten together as public defenders and talked about how our clients' booking photos show that there was excessive force, and yet these are the people that are being held into court and prosecuted and charged with criminal acts, even when there doesn't seem to be a reason for that. And we never see these police officers who engage in this excessive force ever prosecuted for these acts. And so for me, being a public defender is really at the core of who I am. And although I'm not a public defender now in name or title, I always will have the public defender heart, as I call it, and I will always be a public defender. And just having that experience, as well as my personal experience living and growing up in Southeast San Diego, which has a lot of police presence and a lot of engagement with law enforcement, it really just encouraged me and confirmed my purpose that I needed to do work that was embedded in representing the community, empowering the community to know their rights and for standing up for their rights and to work on the side of justice for all people. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you mean by a public defender's heart? That's a, a neat way of framing it. I always say that the Constitution embeds public defenders. You can't talk about a criminal justice system without acknowledging that as a right under our Constitution, individuals who are criminally accused are given the right to have representation, competent representation, and that takes the form of public defenders. And so as a public defender, I believe that we safeguard the guarantees of our Constitution the very U.S. Constitution that everyone touts and talks about. And at the same time, we get criticism for defending the quote-unquote guilty people. But this is what our system is actually designed on. It is that you are innocent until proven guilty, and that if a prosecutor wants to take away your life and your liberty, they have to clear the bar. And that is the standard of proving things beyond a reasonable doubt. And public defender stands there as a protector and a barrier against the all awesome government when they seek to take away life and liberty of individuals. And we've seen firsthand that folks who have been historically and currently marginalized from society bear the brunt 
of our criminal justice system, so much that people don't want to call it a criminal justice system. A lot of folks would rather call it the criminal legal system or just the legal system and even some the criminal injustice system. And so my work really is trying to transform it into an absolute criminal justice system that we can all have faith in. And can you tell us a little bit more about how that that viewpoint helped inform uh, advocates for just and moral governance, or as, as you mentioned, MoGo, uh, which will, will save us some time on the pod podcast. How, how did that help form what you wanted to accomplish with MoGo or help inform that? So MoGo is a nonprofit. We are a 501c3, and we are an impact litigation organization. And that means that we will sue and initiate lawsuits on behalf of individuals in order to make systemic change. Our purpose is to change systems. We know that in this country, in America, a lot of our systems, many of our systems are very rooted in racism, for instance. And so changing systems would actually better our society so that we are united in this recognition of common humanity. And so the purpose of MOGO is to hold government accountable to all people, regardless of their station in life, their status, their economic status, or their education level, for instance. And so we engage in various forms of advocacy, but litigation is definitely a form of how we will change government and enact new policies. And so just seeing a lot of the injustices that happen, Mogul was founded with the belief that government is the people and it should work for the people and on behalf of the people. And we really haven't seen that. We've seen where our government officials and government actors through the district attorney's office or the city attorney's office, for instance, and even our police departments, where they act in their own interest. And so Mogul seeks to bring in compassion, and change systems so that everyone is treated with humanity. One of my favorite things to say is that you don't lose your humanity simply because you enter into jail doors or into the gates of prisons. And I think that this has been lost on a lot of people in the way that, that our system plays out. And so Mogo is there to ensure that all people are treated fairly, that they have access to government, and that our government rules with the people in mind and not to protect the establishment or the status quo. And can, can you tell us about some of the initiatives or, or specific impacts you've been able to have through the work of MoGo? Absolutely. So we formally launched on March 7th, and that is the night that I was announced as the executive director. Until that day, no one knew that I had any part of MoGo. And we did this by design. We wanted to make a very big statement. So although I was a co-founder, I was in the background. We had a soft launch in the fall. And we really just wanted to come out and have a very strong statement about who we were. And so we decided that we would do that on March 7th, not knowing that five days later, the mayor of San Diego would declare that we were in a state of emergency for the city and that right. we would be under shelter in place in less than two weeks after the launch. And so one of my first acts as executive director, and this is actually the very first act, was I sent a letter to our mayor and to the chief of police demanding 
that they stop ticketing unsheltered people during this pandemic. We had the CDC guidelines come out that said that clearing homeless encampments was detrimental to the efforts to curb COVID-19 spread. And again, it goes back to humanity. It is not humane to do this. We saw in San Diego that unsheltered people were seeking protection under the awning of a public library that had been closed because of the pandemic. And this was during a period of intense torrential downpour in San Diego, where we saw four or five days of this rain. And we saw members of the San Diego Police Department pushing unsheltered people out into the rain and telling them that they couldn't be there and ticketing them for encroachment and illegal lodging. And so I sent this letter saying that it was not okay for our city to engage in these types of actions and also to impound RVs that people were using as shelters. If we wanna be very honest about this, we have an exploding homelessness problem and neither the city nor the county of San Diego has dealt with it in the way that they should have. And so to push people out and punish them for not being unsheltered when it really was our government's doing that these folks have nowhere to go didn't make sense to me. And so I attached as exhibits citations that were given and issued to individuals who were unsheltered from the four days before sending over this letter and saying, this is what you're doing. And not only does it defy standards of humanity, but it defies what we're even being told to do by the CDC itself. And it defies what we're being told to do as a state because our governor gave us directives. And so that was my first act as an executive director of MOGO. And we've now engaged in a lawsuit with Disability Rights California against the city. And that is one of the things that we are doing as part of MOGO. The other thing is that we filed emergency petitions on behalf of attorneys who represent individuals who are criminally accused, who were not afforded $0 bail that should have been granted to them because it was a mandate throughout the state by the Judicial Council of California that most misdemeanors and most felonies, unless they fell into a certain exception would be granted zero dollar bail and we saw where the district attorney defied that order and so we filed emergency petitions on behalf of those folks and we filed emergency petitions on behalf of immunocompromised and pregnant high-risk women in our county jails here in san diego and so we had folks who have conditions like hiv and other immunocompromising conditions and we stood up for them in court and said they should be released and not kept in the jails where COVID-19 was present and where they would very likely contract a very severe illness or even die as a result of contracting COVID-19. So that is just some of the work that we've engaged in as MOGO. And this is work we never thought we would be doing. But again, being propelled into this COVID-19 pandemic, it really shifted the work, but we kept the same vision and we kept the same focus. And so it's just been a, a wonderful time to engage in the work. And I say wonderful because I always look at seeing the opportunity in a crisis. And right now we are in dual crises. We are in the crisis of the COVID-19 pandemic, which is not over yet. And then also the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd. Right. And, and I'd love for you to, to speak to, to, to that as well. And, and obviously you, you, couldn't have anticipated maybe how relevant uh, your organization would, would be just 
uh, a few days after officially launching it and, and a few months after launching it uh, with, the, with the current climate around uh, racial inequity and, and systemic injustice. How, how does that factor into MoGo's mission? And, and I'd love for you to comment also uh, issues you think the legal profession as a whole should be, be thinking about. And if there's a call to action, what does that call to action look like? So what we've seen in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd and the ensuing events is that words alone are not enough. And I describe it as a rerun of shows that we've seen many times. If we look at what happened after these episodes of school shootings, We had members of Congress and other elected officials not do anything about the school shootings. They gave these symbolic gestures. They gave their thoughts and their prayers, but there was no action to back it up. There was nothing that they did that would actually prevent the next school shooting from happening. And my fear is that we will not seize this moment. And I use the word moment very intentionally because America is very fickle. And just as we were inundated with news about COVID-19 day after day, 24 hours a day, the coverage has now shifted to the Black Lives Matter movement. And just that fast, we forgot that we were still under a pandemic that is life-threatening. So much to the point that cases are rising yet again. And we've shifted the perspectives to the Black Lives Matter movement. And just as fast as we've shifted there, our attention can go away to the next quote unquote hot issue. And so it's not that I believe that Black Lives Matter is simply something that is momentary, but it is something that we have to pay attention to and actually give actions to and not just words. I firsthand seen things come out of the city attorney's office of San Diego, the district attorney's office of San Diego. And really it's not movement. It's not progressing us forward and moving us forward to the reforms that we actually need. And so with this particular moment, with seeing how many people of different races, cultures, creeds, and belief have taken to the streets and have demanded that there be an honoring of black lives, that this actually translates into something And so for MOGO, our work is deeply embedded in achieving racial justice. Our work is embedded in having social justice. And we recognize that the work cannot be done if we do not recognize that this means acknowledging racism in all of our systems. There's racism that is rooted in our healthcare systems, our education systems, our legal systems, political systems all of our systems in America. And we really have to acknowledge that first before we can move on. There's been studies after studies in San Diego, for example, where SDSU in an independent study in 2016 laid out there that racial profiling happens. And our city council said, thank you for giving us that information. We accept your findings that there's racial profiling that happens, that Black people and Latinos and Asian American Pacific Islanders are stopped, searched, and even arrested at higher rates than their white counterparts, and they're less likely to have contraband. That's the case of African American drivers in San Diego. 
And yet the city council did not move to approve any of the recommendations that were part of that study. We fast forward to last December and a study by Campaign Zero using the data from the San Diego Police Department and the San Diego Sheriff's Department showed that black drivers are stopped at a rate of 219% higher than their white counterparts. And so I'm asking where are the solutions? Because these have been things that people of color have been talking about and urging people in positions of power to take action on. And all of our demands have fallen on deaf ears. And so I'm hoping that at this moment, we actually seize this moment that confronts us to actually put into place much needed reforms and changes in our policing and in our criminal justice system as a whole. And over the course of your career, Genevieve, I've got to imagine that you've experienced firsthand uh, these incidents of police acting improperly, police misconduct. Can, can you tell us a, a bit about some of the cases you've uh, worked on or been exposed to where this has uh, come to pass? So I talked about this a little earlier, at least I referenced it, that there were many times where my clients would come to me with faces that were bruised, black mm -hmm. and blue. At times there would be broken bones and yet they were the defendants in a case. And I never heard anything about the officers being prosecuted. One case sits with me to this day. It was a young man who was riding his bicycle and it didn't have a bike light. And it was at a park, Memorial Park in Southeast San Diego. And the police officers used him not having a bike light to stop him. And then it escalated into severe excessive force being used against him. He was ultimately prosecuted for pulling out knives on police officers. And by the end of the case, they actually alleged that he pulled out three knives and they were never able to produce these knives. And I was able to convince a jury that the police officers were not credible. They had body worn camera footage that didn't show anything that they talked about. It went from one knife to two knives to three knives. And then they said they found drugs on him and the jury ended up acquitting him fully of all charges. But this case stands out to me because it really wrecked his life. There was emotional damage. He sat in jail. And it was only because he had an attorney who believed in his case and who was willing to fight for him. And we actually had a good jury who believed that police officers could lie. But there's been so many times where I've witnessed police officers being given that badge of credibility because they are law enforcement. And right. a lot of community members rightfully want to believe that police officers will not lie. But when you have a police officer's word against a lay person's word, especially when that person has a criminal history, we know who the jury is going to believe. And that client went on to sue civilly and he got a settlement, but it hasn't changed the fact that he's had to uproot and move his family to a different city because of the trauma that he endured. And that's one of those cases where I would think it's sort of a happy ending, it's not quite a happy ending because I wish it never happened. But so many other people get trampled under this credibility that gets afforded to law enforcement. They never get believed. And so we have a lot of work to do in the criminal justice system. And that case sits with me 
very, very strongly. As you pointed out, it's the maybe the best case outcome other than having it not happened at all. And it's still uh, a life altering and a, event in, in a very negative way. It is. And this is why we're pushing for the policies that we're pushing for. We are a member of the Coalition for Police Accountability and Transparency. And with CPAT, we are asking that consent searches be banned in San Diego. We are asking that police officers no longer engage in pretextual stops as a policy. We are asking that low-level offenses not be enforced by law enforcement. And when we're talking about low-level and quality-of-life offenses, again, going back to folks who are unsheltered, being ticketed for being unsheltered, it is literally making the, the state of being an unsheltered person a crime when we know that that is not right. And we're asking that police officers not be that first line of defense, that they not be the first responders when someone is unsheltered on the streets, that that person should actually be met with someone who can help them with their housing. When people have mental health episodes, that it not be the police who engage with them, that it would be someone with a background that is trained in de-escalating someone with a mental health episode. We've had our share of killings of persons who are mentally ill and family members have called for assistance and then their loved ones are killed. And there's no recourse for that, at least not in San Diego. And so these are the things that we have to change. You pointed out at the beginning of the episode that we're in danger of looking at the the criminal justice system in uh, a cynical way and, and not even looking at it as a justice system, but maybe a system for injustice or for perpetuating injustice. What would your, what would your message to your peers in the legal community be right now to start driving the kind of long-term changes that we, we want to see in the system? I encourage my peers in the legal system to just be bold we see the injustices that happen and we have to be very vocal about the injustices. And we have to really call out in love. And, and I believe that we can call out anyone in love. If there's no love behind it, then it's just criticism with a wrong tone and it's not gonna be received. But a couple of weeks ago, we had a public defenders march in support of Black Lives Matter. And this was the first march of its kind. And this was a statewide march. And so there were attorneys from the San Diego Public Defender's Office, as well as the federal defenders here in the Southern District of California, which is located right here in San Diego. And they came out to say that Black Lives Matter. And this was historic. And it was also something that was monumental. As I stated before, public defenders are on the front line. So they've seen these injustices, but this show of solidarity in support of the sanctity of black lives really stood out for me. And it was something that I really wanted to call attention to and really be a part of. I would encourage my peers in the legal industry to understand that we are working with clients who are humans. Never forget that they're not numbers and that these are human lives. And so much of that is lost, especially when we talk about the district attorney's office, when they talk in terms of 
conviction rates and how they get funding based on how many people that they convict. But even looking at my peers, my colleagues in the district attorney's office, it is important to know that behind that number, there's a life with family members and with an entire community. What can we do to actually change the trajectory of someone's life? What can we do to embed restorative justice in our legal systems? And going back to the public defenders, a lot of people say that Black Lives Matter was a political statement. And so there were certain public defender offices that didn't want to sign off on their attorneys participating in this particular march. And I say that that is not a political statement. This is standing on the right side of history and standing with this idea that human rights actually matter. This is a human rights issue. And so for all of my peers in the legal industry, I say, I encourage you to stand strong, to be vocal, and to actually take on actions that really resound and resonate and that will bring forward much needed change. Even if it seems to be political by some or controversial. I mean, if we think about it, Black Lives Matter two years ago was not something that folks would be embracing. And now we're seeing corporations and companies, you know, Fortune 500 companies actually say Black Lives Matter and there is strength in that declaration. And so we as legal professionals can't shy away from it. The same way that we can't shy away from the next movement when it's not popular to do so. We have to do it when it's unpopular. And so that's what I would say. That's what it's truly impactful as well. Um, Absolutely. When you, when you think about the trajectory that you want to hopefully see realized uh, and you think about where we might be able to get a, as a legal industry and as a justice system in five to 10 years, what, what does that look, look like to you? I, I'd love your, your vision of, you know, if, if we do have the kind of impact and drive the kind of change that we, we hope to, what does the, the system look like in five or 10 years from now? So as a system, and also as individuals who are involved in the system, because we really do have to take ownership of this. Yes, we have systemic rules and policies and things that transpire, but we are also people with choices. And so my answer would be the same for the system as a whole, as well as the individuals inside of the system. We have to really act with compassion, concern, and care. And that's the key. I want to see more compassion, concern, and care in our legal systems in five to 10 years. I don't believe that restorative justice has been given the credit or the resources that is needed for us to really move forward as a society that understands that we shouldn't be incarcerating at the level that we are incarcerating, that our young people really do deserve not just a second chance, but many chances because we understand the science behind brain development. And we've been so quick to just say that someone has made a mistake and that person needs to be locked up. And that's not the answer. We haven't solved our problems and we will never solve our problems through over-incarceration. And this is where we've seen ourselves. I think if we've learned anything from this pandemic, this COVID-19 pandemic, is that we don't need to warehouse people. 
that we can still be a safe society. We can still release people who are pending criminal incarceration or pending criminal prosecutions and let them have their day in court if they're not a true danger to society so that they can still be with their loved ones and not face these inhumane conditions. I think we've learned from COVID-19 that bail is not the answer. I mean, all of these things that we were told had to be because this is the way it is. We were finding out that it's not true. I mean, if you look back at 2018, the headlines read that California was finally getting rid of the bail industry and that we had dismantled this bail system. And two years later, we were operating the exact same way. But then COVID-19 hit and we had a mandate from the Judicial Council of California saying, no, for these offenses, which was the majority of defenses, people had to be released on zero dollar bill. And our world hasn't gone topsy-turvy. Our crime rates haven't skyrocketed and we're okay. And so we're really kind of learning that all of these things that we've been fighting against as reformers that we were told we need in place in order to stay safe, that it's not true. And I want us to continue down that line that we don't have to accept what the status quo has given us as what has to be because we can dream and we can reimagine a better society where we're not just warehousing people for the sake of warehousing them. And we don't have this school to prison pipeline. I mean, there's so many other things that I can point to, but I really hope that after this pandemic that we never return to the same place that we returned. If we look at civic engagement and how we conduct our city council meetings and even court hearings, people have more access now because they're willing to allow for us to do things virtually. And I hope we never return to where we have to come down to city hall during a work day and take time off so that the working person can't have their voice heard at city council. I think that there's so much to be learned about this pandemic. And this is why I always say that even in the middle of a crisis, we can find the opportunity. And we found so many opportunities with COVID-19 and also in the wake of George Floyd's murder. That's a great note to end on. Thanks so much for joining us today, Jenny Vieta. I really enjoyed our conversation and keep up the amazing work you're doing with MoGo and beyond. Thank you. I really appreciate being invited to have this all important discussion. So thank you for being wonderful. And anytime you need me back, I will definitely come back because I have many more opinions. <laughs> we, we will take you up on that. And thanks again for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on Daily Matters, a podcast from Clio. Rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Daily Matters is produced by Andrew Booth, Sam Rosenthal, and Derek Boland, and hosted by yours truly, Jack Newton. Thanks also to Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal technology provider, for supporting this podcast.